You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We are your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are going to tackle a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts, prevention and screening. Before we get into that, a reminder to tune in to last week's episode if you haven't already. It was the second episode in a series on all things infant feeding. We welcomed experts on the pod and we discussed breastfeeding, formula feeding, ingredients in formula, European formula, how it compares to American formula, informal breast milk sharing, and a lot more. So if you missed it, definitely go back and check that out. So Andrea, we often say that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I believe Benjamin Franklin was the first to say that. And and basically, in a nutshell, prevention is always better than treatment. And being in the field of public health, this is really important to me because it's, it's harder to measure the absence of disease than the presence of it. So often prevention is put on the back burner and we focus more on the treatment of existing disease. So let's take a little time to shine the light on prevention and screening, shall we? Mm-hmm. All right. So there are different um, types of prevention. Um, really, the three main types that are often discussed are primary, secondary, and tertiary. But then some people include things like primordial prevention. But we're, we're going to focus on, on the first three. So primary prevention aims to prevent disease before it ever occurs. So we're talking about things like preventing exposures to things that can cause disease or injury, um, altering unhealthy or unsafe behaviors that could lead to disease, and increasing resistance to disease or injury should exposure occur. So we're talking about things like legislation uh, and bans or or controlling the use of certain hazardous uh, products like asbestos, um, safe and healthy practices like the use of seatbelts and helmets, education about healthy and safe habits like eating well, exercising, not smoking, and immunization against infectious diseases, something that we've talked quite a bit about. (laughs) Then there's secondary prevention, which aims to reduce the impact of disease or injury that has already occurred. So for this, we're talking about things like detecting and treating disease or injury as soon as possible to halt or slow its progress. And of course, we know that detecting things early, um, that that's, that's always best. You know, of course, we're talking about things like cancer, you know, early stages are always the most um, treatable, uh, but this relates to to lots of other um, diseases and diagnoses. So yeah, exa- and, oh, sorry, go oh, on. I was going to say a lot of these secondary preventions are aimed at, you know, limiting the development or progression of what we often consider chronic diseases or chronic illnesses. Exactly. And and so I think really on this episode, we'll focus on secondary prevention. And, and when we talk about secondary prevention, we're talking about things like regular exams and screening tests. So things like mammograms, um, taking daily low-dose aspirins, uh, diet and exercise programs to prevent further heart disease, for example. So I mean, and the list goes on and on. And, and we'll give some more examples. And then finally, there's tertiary prevention, which aims at 
softening the impact of an ongoing illness or injury that has lasting effects. So we're talking about helping people manage long-term, often complex and co-occurring health problems. So, you know, chronic diseases, permanent impairments. Um, So tertiary prevention talks about things like cardiac or stroke rehab programs, chronic disease management, support groups, and so on. All right, so should we get into how prevention and screening recommendations are made in the U.S.? Yeah, and I just, before we jump in, you know, obviously these are these are kind of ranked in terms of of timing, like primary is, is obviously trying to prevent anything before it could possibly occur. Secondary is trying to head it off, you know, kind of at the time of occurrence and, and tertiary is addressing it after it has occurred. But if you actually look at kind of the societal and even economic impact, you'll see obviously primary prevention measures are going to have the greatest impact, you know, on the whole because you're addressing these situations before they lead to any potential medical issues. And so the impact is going to be greatest at the primary level and and decrease, you know, modestly as you move through these tiers. And Andrea, you know, we we talked about this before we hit record, but we could have dozens of episodes on Mm -hmm. each of the things that we're going to be talking about in today's episode. So it's going to be high level, but we have lots more content planned. Yes. So in the U.S., there are several governing bodies that make prevention recommendations. Um, The one that Uh, we hear a lot about is the United States Preventive Services Task Force, which is often abbreviated as USPSTF. And that's a governing body that makes recommendations for primary and secondary prevention. Then there's ASIP, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunizations Practices. And that's um, through the CDC where they, um, the ASIP makes recommendations for, for vaccines. Then there's the Women's Preventive Services Initiative, WPSI, and then various specialty organizations such as the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the American Cancer Society, and much more. Um, And so, you know, with the multitude of information and and the different recommending bodies, it can be challenging not only for, for, for us as you know, people, but also for healthcare professionals and for clinicians. Um, And then another thing I want to mention is that a lot of these recommendations will inform insurance coverage, right? Mm -hmm. And so what tests and screening insurance will cover. And I know, Andrea, we definitely want to talk about that. (laughs) Yes. Um, All of these tests and preventative measures, they come with costs. And even if we are not paying out of pocket, Someone is paying for that, right? Yeah. So we'll talk more about that. And I do want to, you know, I, I just, I just want to emphasize that the USPSTF, um, it's a, it's a volunteer-based panel of national experts. It, it, it works alongside governmental organizations, but it is not part of a governmental organization in and of itself. Such an important distinction, yes. So it was created in 1984, and as you said, it's an independent volunteer panel of national experts in prevention and evidence-based medicine. It's a combination of scientists and clinicians, and their stated mission is to improve the health of people nationwide by making evidence-based recommendations on clinical preventive services and health promotion in primary care settings. 
So we will definitely link to this in the show notes, but I think it's cool if you go to their website, they actually assign one of five letter grades to all services. So it's either A, B, C, D, or I. So A is um, signals that there's high certainty that the net benefit of whatever's being recommended is substantial. And then, you know, that, that decreases as you go from A through D. And then I stands for in- insufficient. So that signals that the current evidence base is insufficient to assess the balance of benefits and harms of the service. So either, you know, the evidence is lacking, it's of poor quality, um, or there's conflicting evidence. All right. So the, another th- cool thing I just wanted to flag for folks is that if you click on the link, um, you can actually filter out recommendations by category. So you can look at, you know, um, either cancer-related recommendations, cardiovascular, uh, infectious disease, mental health, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also filter out by by sex, by gender, by pregnancy status, and type of preventive service. So obviously, we can't cover all recommended prevention <laughs> services and screenings, but should we start with cervical cancer screening? Yeah, you know, actually, last month was Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and we yes. tackled tackled a lot of things about HPV, and we we talked about kind of the the rough recommendations, and we had a lot of questions about this. Was you know why are they only recommending this now, and and you know why did it used to be this, and so this that was actually a conversation that kind of prompted this discussion on you know why these preventive health me- measures and the recommendations associated with them change over time. Right. So the one that has been getting a lot of attention, the recommendation that's been getting a lot of attention is pap smear. And it's because, I mean, I'm sure you remember, Andrea, that not so long ago, it was recommended that we get a pap smear every year. But now that recommendation has changed to be every three years um, or even every five years if done in conjunction with with HPV testing. And, you know, that's called co-testing. So we just wanted to talk about that briefly and then why that change happened. So right now, the recommendation is for women aged 21 to 65 years to get a pap smear, which is a cervical cancer screening or cervical cytology, um, every three years. And then for women aged 30 to 65 years, you can get screened every three years uh, with pap smear alone, every five years with HPV testing alone, or every five years with pap smear and HPV testing together. And I and I just chuckled because I feel like it is hard to keep track of these recommendations, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so that's why, you know, obviously that's why we exist and we try to distill these things out. We have some nice infographics that, that break this out by demographic that we'll reshare to show notes. Um, but also why it is important to kind of flag these sites and where you can actually filter out by your demographics and see, you know, which tests and which screening procedures are relevant for you. Mm-hmm. Now, now maybe I can kind of talk a little bit about like why some of this has changed a little bit. Yes. So, so, you know, we know in the context of cervical cancer, nearly all cervical cancers are caused by infection with 
with HPV. So that's human papillomavirus. Um, there are many different strains of human papillomaviruses, but there are a subset of them that are known to lead to um, changes in cervical tissue that can be scored as dysplastic or neoplastic or, you know, progressing to cancer. And so doing these sorts of testing, you're you're basically swabbing the cervix, you're collecting some of these cells, and you're assessing for these changes in cells, which is what cytology um, basically means. So so you're looking at the morphology and the, the architecture of these cells from the cervix. So the the main contributor of this in the context of cervical cancers are infections with these HPV viruses. And these viruses can basically persist in cells and they can lead to mutations over time. So one thing that's true for most cancers is these cancers, aside from those that are inherited, are can- are things that progress over time. So they typically are a result of mutations, cumulative mutations that basically tell normal cells to stop behaving like they should and stop ignoring these checkpoints that we've discussed previously and then they start proliferating out of out of control and that ultimately will lead to to a tumor. So um, the good news is because most of these cervical cancers are caused by HPV, we actually, um, you know, can screen for the virus, the presence of the virus itself, so the HPV test, um, or we can do the pap test in combination um, to look for cells that have changes that may progress into cancer. Now, these changes don't happen instantaneously. So while there used to be a recommendation to do these sorts of testing every single year, we understand that the time from HPV infection to changes in cells that may be indications of precancer to the actual progression of cancer takes longer than a year. So there really isn't a health or cost benefit to be running these tests every single year unless you have specific risk factors. So by reducing the frequency with which you get this test, you're still able to identify any of these early cervical cancer cases or precancerous lesions um, and be able to address them before they progress. And that's completely separate from HPV vaccination, which can really, you know, eliminate, you know, almost all cases of cervical cancer to begin with. I was just going to say, I, I I hope we could at least just mention the <laughs> HPV vaccine. I know right now we're talking about cervical cancer screening, but of course there is an HPV vaccine. It's available uh, for kids as young as nine years. Yes. Um, so anyway, we have lots of content on that. We could tag that in the show notes as well. Um, but just to recap the public health impact of cer- cervical cancer, um, the American Cancer Society's Estimates for cervical cancer in the U.S. for 2023 are that about 14,000 new cases of invasive cervical cancer will be diagnosed and about 4,300 women will die from cervical cancer. So this is incredibly important. And the good news is that cervical cancer screening has dramatically reduced new cases and deaths from cervical cancer of the past few decades. But there still exists an alarming percentage of people who are overdue for cervical cancer screening. 
and that's growing. And so, you know, the reasons for that have not been clear, um, but there has been some research on it, some surveys that have been done. Um, We know that uh, in 2019, compared with non-Hispanic white women, Asian and Hispanic women were more likely to be overdue for screening, as were women who lived in rural areas, those who lacked insurance or identified as um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer Um, other or unsure. And the most common reason given for not receiving timely screening was lack of knowledge about screening or not knowing they needed uh, needed screenings. So this is obviously something that we do need to continue to talk about. If you have a cervix, please, please talk to your provider and make sure that you are up to date on your screenings. And I want to, you know, make another note here. So so I actually had an abnormal pap um, in my 20s and had to get a colposcopy, which is essentially like a punch biopsy where they take some cervical cancer tissue and they, and they do some further investigation to determine if it is in fact, you know, cancerous or, or so on and so forth. And in that sort of situation, they, they typically will alter the screening recommendations. So nowadays, it's still an annual exam by your OBGYN. Well, they'll they'll use a speculum and they'll take a peek, but they won't necessarily do a scraping. Um, But if you've had maybe an abnormal pap in the recent past or you had some, you know, you had a colposcopy and there were some, you know, irregularities, they may recommend doing a pap test uh, more frequently until you have a certain number of normal pap tests moving forward. And actually, I'm so happy that you said that. And, you know, I've shared that I I also um, tested positive for HPV. I also had a colposcopy. I had precancer cells. Luckily, I've, you know, cleared the virus uh, since then. Um, but, I'm you know, that, that during that time, I was definitely more closely monitoring and, you know, undergoing more, um, more close screening. And so there are certain risk factors um, that may, as Andrea just said, impact the, the frequency and timing of those screenings. So definitely something to discuss with your provider. And just really briefly, Andrea, um, just want to flag for folks that we have a post on pap smear specifically and really, you know, what to expect if you've never had one. And just to be totally transparent, you know, it's not something that I look forward to. It's not It's not fun, but it's also, you know, not not terrible. And if, I think if you know what to expect when you're going into it, that, that helps a lot. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, the colposcopy was incredibly um, uncomfortable and painful, and there were no numbing agents used. I had no idea what to expect going into that. It was not advised to take anything like, um, you know, ibuprofen or anything ahead of time. And that's something I know we want to also talk about separately. That's a whole other issue. But anyway, so we have lots of content on that that we'll reshare, um, but really such an important topic. All right, let's shift gears to an entirely different demographic, vitamin K for infants. And Mm -hmm. I remember when I had my kids, uh, when I was a new mom, you know, I, you know, was sort of going into this, not knowing what to expect. And I had so many people tell me to refuse vitamin K for my infants, you know, right, right when my kids were born. Thankfully, as a public health scientist, I looked into the data. My husband's a clinician. I had a wonderful OBGYN, and I knew much better than that. So so let's talk about, um, Andrea, do you just want to do like a high-level overview? You know, what is vitamin K? 
Yeah. Yeah. So vitamin K is a fat soluble vitamin um, and vitamin K is required for modifications of certain proteins um, that are required to facilitate blood coagulation um, as well as assisting in binding of calcium in, in bones and other tissues. And so um, it's it's critical, right? It's essential for life, um, you know, and so deficiency in vitamin K can actually lead to reduced blood clotting, can also lead to... Um, bleeding disorders, um, and other, and other sorts of, um, complications. Right. And so without this, you're increasing the risk that your infant can develop, as you just said, you know, vitamin K deficiency, bleeding, uh, VKDB. Um, There's a chance of bleeding, of the infant bleeding into his or her intestines and brain, which can lead to brain damage and even death. And And the I was going to say, the the reason we're talking about this in the context of infants is because most people can get vitamin K through their diet, right? Um, It's found in a variety of both plant and animal sources of food, leafy greens, cruciferous vegetables. Um, You know, most animal products have some vitamin K in them. But infants, when they're born, they typically do not have much vitamin K in their body. And so, you know, we've learned over the years that we need to address that to reduce infant mortality rates. Right. And so infants have been given vitamin K shots at birth since it was first recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics back in 1961. So as Andrea just said, you know, babies have very little vitamin K. And this is because vitamin K from the mom is not easily shared with a developing baby during pregnancy. Um, And the intestine of newborns um, has very little bacteria and they just don't make enough vitamin K on their own. So I just want to be clear that classic vitamin K deficiency bleeding, it's it, it's rare, right? And it's and even more than that, it's rarely fatal, um, yeah. but it can occur and the outcomes can be extremely poor. And um, about 20% of the babies that, that develop this deficiency, the vitamin K deficiency, die and 50% sustain long-term brain damage. And the shot itself has no side effects other than, you know, the fact that no one loves to get a shot. So there's brief pain um, and rare but possible bruising. But there's little to no risk of an allergic reaction. Uh, It's injected into the muscle instead of the vein. Um, And unfortunately, there's a real rise in hesitancy and refusal to, to give the vitamin K shot to infants because of this idea that it's unnatural and unnecessary. Well, you know, and it's interesting because it also, a lot of individuals who are opposed to vaccinations are also opposed to vitamin K injection simply based on the fact that they're both delivered by needle. Right. Very beautifully said. And then, you know, you know that we'll have people say, well, you know, I, I, I'm breastfeeding, so won't they get it from the, the breast milk? And the answer is no. Breast milk is actually low in vitamin K. Um, breast milk from mothers who are, you know, even those who take vitamin K supplements is also low. And the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all newborns, whether they're breastfed, formula-fed, whatever it is, they receive a one-time intramuscular shot of vitamin K within six hours after birth. All right, Andrea, let's move on to annual well checks, blood work, and adult vaccines. 
Do you want to set the stage here or do you want me yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, obviously we talk a lot about childhood vaccines. We talk a lot about other sorts of, um, you know, medical interventions and something that often doesn't get a lot of attention or just well checks in, in society, right? You know, the U.S. is historically not a society that puts a ton of emphasis on preventative health care based on our healthcare infrastructure and kind of for-profit insurance companies. Um, so this, you know, a lot of this is due to the fact that people don't necessarily have access or, or finances to handle that. And so, you know, this topic is actually kind of controversial. Um, some folks in the clinical community think that, you know, annual well visits are important and some people, you know, do not. Um, there, There is some data that suggests that, you know, for most healthy people with with healthful lifestyles, um, annual physician exams um, may may do more harm and good. So you kind of fall into this, you know, this balance of over screening versus under screening, right? Now, if you there was a, a one large scale review in 2012 found that an, annual physicals for adults um, did nothing to improve persons' disease or mortality risks. Um, another recent study found some evidence that annual physicals could reassure people that they were in good health and re- re- reduce uh, health anxiety or things like that. Um, but it did not find that these exams were really saving lives or, or preventing disease on the whole. Right. Um, so can I can I actually just jump in? Because that yeah. study, that large review that, that you mentioned that was from 2012, that's something that's really often cited by folks. Um, so just to sort of recap what you're saying, I think that there are a lot of clinicians who think it's a great idea for the physician um, uh, patient relationship, you know, to, to do this, to have to have a, a a visit at least once a year. But again, I think the concern is that it's really not actually contributing to improved quantity or quality of life. So so that review um, that was in 2012, it was published in the Cochrane Collaboration, which is an international group of medical researchers. So they analyzed 14 randomized controlled trials with over 180,000 people. They followed them for a median of nine years and sought to evaluate the benefits of routine general health checkups. Um, And they found that appointments were actually not all that beneficial. Um, Regardless of which screenings and tests were administered, studies of annual health exams dating from 1963 to 1999 showed that annual physicals did not reduce mortality overall or for specific causes of death from cancer or heart disease. And, you know, checkups do consume billions, um, but we're not exactly sure how many billions because of the challenge of measuring um, all the additional screenings and follow-up tests that are then prompted by those visits. And so because of this, because of this lack of, of evidence, the United States Preventive Services Task Force does not have a recommendation on routine annual health checkups. Um, and just want to note that Canadian guidelines have recommended against these exams since 1979. So, I mean, there's so much more we could say about costs and about, you know, the, the provider-patient relationship. Uh, again, you know, some feel it's important for relationship building. But again, you know, someone is going to pay for these things. Um, there is a cost, even if you're not paying out of pocket. And, and you know, the, the other thing that I think is important to mention, that even if you're not getting, uh, you know, 
uh, blood work done, for example, some doctors think that seeing your doctor um, just to sort of come up with an annual uh, review of health, uh, go you know to go over concerns and come up with a plan of prevention, that that is sort of the way to go. You know, not to just do these you know blanket ordering of, of blood tests and screenings, but just to meet and come up with a plan. Um, and actually, insurance companies are starting to recognize the benefits of, of that sort of visit and are starting to reimburse doctors better for these um, wellness consultations. Yeah. And of course, this isn't a one size fits all, right? If you are predisposed to certain medical issues or if you have any concerning symptoms, you know, even if you're not officially due or, you know, you're not following a routine schedule, it can always, you know, benefit to to see a clinician, you know, evaluate and investigate those potential symptoms, um, you know, get some testing done and so on and so forth. And just one other thing, sorry, and then we'll move on to the next. I, I want to flag something called My Health Finder. It's an amazing tool that we can link to. Um, it, it also allows you to basically plug in your name, uh, your name, excuse me, not your name, your age um, and your your sex. And then based on that, it gives you a list of recommended screenings and services. And I actually plugged in um, our age um, and it it popped up the following. So it said that I should be scheduling these the these screenings, blood pressure screening, cervical cancer screening, hep C screening, HIV testing, um, important vaccinations such as the flu vaccine and well woman visit. And then it even breaks things out more by saying, you know, if you're sexually active, you talk about things like, you know, STD screening, talk to your doctor if you're concerned about, and then it breaks things out like alcohol use, depression, etc. Um, and then also says talk to your doctor if you're at risk for breast or ovarian cancer, hep etc. And all of these things have links to more information because, um, for example, the first thing that popped up was blood pressure screening. And so I was thinking, huh, like, is this something that I should be getting done on an annual basis? Or, you know, how do I check my blood pressure? And so if you click it, it says if you're age 40 or older, if you're at higher risk for high blood pressure, get your blood pressure checked once a year. But for us, you know, we're age 18 to 39, not at increased risk for high blood pressure. It's safe to get blood pressure checked every three to five years. So the overall takeaway is you don't necessarily need to see your primary care uh, physician every year to, to get you know blood tests ordered as long as you're following the recommendations for your you know for for your particular um, age bracket all, you know all your demographics then you should be in good shape as long as you know you're not experiencing anything that is causing concern and then of course in that case talk to your doctor all right I feel so like I, wanna, I just rambled you know? I want to. <laughs> I want to talk about adult vaccinations because I, I think that, that that often gets overlooked. People get very focused on the, the childhood vaccination schedule and they forget that there are vaccines that adults should be getting regularly. So first of all, everyone should be getting their seasonal flu vaccine. That is an every year flu shot you should be getting during the fall season in whatever country or hemisphere you happen to be in because we know seasonal influenza activity peaks during the winter months. 
months. Um, the flu vaccine is recommended for everyone six months and older. There is a higher dose flu flu vaccine for older people um, because the, the immune system does tend to wane in terms of uh, responsiveness as you age. So it's a it's a mega dose flu shot. Um, but flu vaccine is particularly important for anyone with risk factors, chronic health conditions, respiratory issues, pregnant women, um, and older adults. Every adult should also be getting a Tdap vaccine. So that's tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, which is also sometimes called whooping cough. Um, and that should be a, a booster shot every 10 years. If you happen to work in a space where you handle a lot of animals, particularly, um, you know, wild animals or research animals, you may get that booster more frequently. Um and then women should also be getting a Tdap vaccine every time they are pregnant, um, preferably between weeks 27 and 36 weeks uh, of pregnancy. And so that will that will allow passive transfer of protective antibodies to the baby as well. Um, there are also some specific recommendations for other vaccines as, as an adult. Um, so the first one is shingles vaccine. So this is particularly recommended for individuals who did not receive the chickenpox vaccine as a child. That I actually was right before that that vaccine came on the market, and I actually got shingles when I was in my 20s, and it was terrible. Oh and I was, yeah, it was awful. I was not old enough to get the vaccine. It was excruciating. Um, so so currently it is recommended for for adults 50 and older the shingles vaccine. Shingles can be potentially fatal if it if it reactivates in certain nerves, particularly facial nerves. It can lead to encephalitis and meningitis and things like that. Um, so that's one to consider as well. And then also the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. So this prevents against pneumococcal pneumonia. Um, and this is recommended for adults 65 and older. Um, there are two options. There's one called PCV15 and PCV20. Um, and, and depending on which one you use, it may be followed by an additional dose of a, of a, a related, a related vaccine called a polysaccharide vaccine. Um, and then of course we cannot forget that hepatitis B vaccine. So the hepatitis B vaccine is actually recommended for, for, to start as a child, but if you haven't received it, um, it's also recommended for all adults age 19 through 59, um, as well as adults 60 and older with any potential risk factors. Hepatitis B virus can potentially lead to liver cancer. So that's another vaccine like HPV that can actually also prevent certain types of cancer. All right. So I know we we also wanted to talk about colonoscopies. And, and really, I hope that our audience understands how difficult it was to come up with a list of things that we should tackle for this episode. Um, and I think we'll need to have more episodes. But but let's round out the episode discussing col colonoscopies. Have okay. you ever had one, Andrea? Um, I have not, but I have had a lot of colorectal procedures, including colorectal surgery a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess technically during that they did a colonoscopy, but they did a whole lot more than just that. Um, oh, boy. Unintended. <laughs> Pun intended. Whole lot more. Um, um, so I, I actually had a colonoscopy. Um, and, and so this sort of just goes to say, you know, I'm outside. Obviously, we're going to talk about the recommendations now. I'm outside of the recommended, you know, age at which you, you should start getting regular colonoscopies, and which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I was having, some, you know, all kinds of 
GI problems. And so a colonoscopy was part of many um, exams and tests that were run. But um, and, and I guess I just wanted to say it really wasn't bad at all. Um, I don't remember anything. There was no discomfort, nothing like that. You know, the worst part, as many people say, is the prep. Um, and you mm. know, I remember joking with the doc, you know, right before the procedure and, you know, being a little bit self-conscious. I think I was in my early 20s at the time. And he was like, ah, you seen one, you seen them all, like doesn't even bat an eye. It just doesn't phase them. So, um, I, you know, we... I just wanted to mention that because I feel yeah. like that that might be an issue for people. Totally. Yeah. I mean, definitely my whole colorectal surgery was <laughs> not not pleasant. Um, but but that, you know, that's surgery. So um, but but let me let me kind of set the stage. So colonoscopy is part of screening that that allows us to detect colo colorectal cancers. So colon and rectal cancers. Colorectal cancer almost always develops from precancerous polyps. So these are growths that are found in the colon or the rectum. And so screening tests can help find these polyps early enough that they can be removed before they progress into cancer. Um, and so these sorts of screening tools are great to identify them early. And that's also when treatment and and prognosis for colorectal cancer is the greatest. So the reason that this is obviously very important, um, it's estimated that over 52,000 deaths, um, a slightly higher proportion of men versus women, um, will die from colorectal cancer in the U.S. every year. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death for both men and women combined. Um, there's a lot of symptoms of colorectal cancer that that, um, you know, can indicate an issue, um, including changes in bowel habits, um, blood in your stool or on your stool, um, diarrhea, constipation, or feeling that your bowel is not emptying all the way when you have a bowel movement, and of course, various abdominal pains, as well as unexplained weight loss. Um, now, the prognosis when found early is very good. For combined colon and rectal cancers, um, five-year survival of individuals with localized stage cancer cancer is 91%, which is very, very high. Um, about 37% of patients are diagnosed at this stage. Um, if we can improve that, so more patients are diagnosed in earlier stages, we're going to improve morbidity and mortality, right? Um, now, once you have kind of regional spread, meaning that it's in the, the, the surrounding tissues and organs or the regional lymph nodes within the colon and rectal region, the five-year survival drops to 72%. Uh, about 36% of people are diagnosed in this stage. Once the cancer has metastasized to spread throughout distal parts of the body, the five-year survival drops really precipitously to 15%. Um, and almost a quarter of patients are diagnosed at this stage. So, so doing these screening tests are really important because these colonoscopy testing can improve the, the proportion of individuals we identify these polyps in the, or these early cancers. So what is a colonoscopy or, you know, what, what does that entail? Um, so during a colonoscopy, a long, flexible tube is inserted into the rectum and a tiny, tiny video camera at the tip of the tube allows the doctor to view the inside of the entire colon. And then if necessary, if the doctor sees polyps or abnormal tissue, they could remove those through the scope during during the actual procedure. And then tissue samples or biopsies can be taken during a colonoscopy as well. I um, want to note yeah. <laughs> that you're sedated during this. Oh my God. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> that is 
a that is a very good distinction. Um, so this is another example of um, of a change in recommendations because right now the recommendation is that um, regular screening should start at age. 45 um, for colorectal cancer screening. It used to be 50 years old, but that was lowered based on available data and research, right? And so the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends that adults age 45 to 75 be screened for colorectal cancer and that adults over 76 years of age talk talk to their doctor about screening. Um, and and the reason yeah. for that for the for the older population, you know, on a case by case situation, is because, you know, it's a it's a cost benefit analysis or risk benefit analysis, right? We know that polyps, you know, are pre often are are pre cancer. Um, you know, you look at the time to progress to cancer. You look at the the life expectancy or the prognosis based on that. You know, and you look at the the average life expectancy. So, you know, a lot of times the 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 risk benefit isn't there for individuals who are you know eighty five years old or so on to to still continue with routine colonoscopy. So right now, I believe the recommendation or the typical guidance is that you get a colonoscopy every 10 years if you have no other risk factors. Right. But then that is often coupled with other screening methods. Do you want to maybe just chat briefly about those other screening methods? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple couple stool tests. Um, so the guaiac fecal occult blood test or a fecal immunochemical test. These can look for various biomarkers of of precancer or cancer. Um, Sometimes they'll also do a computed tomography colonography. So this is kind of like an external colonoscopy you can think about um, or also a a flexible sigmoidoscopy. Um, And and they'll kind of uh, look at these in in intervals of, of, um, well, sometimes yearly, sometimes every five years, sometimes every 10 years. Um, And so you won't always get all of these, but but particularly if you have any sort of abnormal results um, or any potential risk factors, they may include a, a few different screening tests. Now, you may have risk factors that mean that you're going to get colonoscopy more frequently or starting at an earlier age. And some of those would be if you have any sort of gastrointestinal disorder, so things like inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Um, if you have any sort of family, family history of colorectal polyps or colorectal cancer, or you have some sort of genetic syndrome, such as familial adenomatous, (laughs) I completely butchered that, Um, familial adenomatous polyposis, or hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, also called Lynch syndrome. So any of these, you may um, be starting your colonoscopy screenings at an earlier age. I have some friends who started theirs at age 30, and they get them every five years um, because they do have family history. All right. Do we want to say anything else about colonoscopies before we sort of wrap up our conversation on prevention and screening? Um, <laughs> um, no, I think I, mean, I think... I think- Yeah, yeah. I think we we covered a lot. All right. Um, So as we said, you know, there are so there's so much more that we want to say. So many other, um, you know, preventive screenings and tests. Um, I think that something that is worth noting is that you know a lot of these screenings are recommended for um, you know for young people, and often young people feel that they're invincible. Um, And so you know, please don't put preventive health on the back burner. It is so important. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention is that I think that folks sometimes get frustrated with these recommendations because 
You know, we've we've done posts. I think there were some people who commented on our post, um, actually, on for Pap smears, uh, Andrea. I don't know if you remember, and they said, you know, they shouldn't have made this change um, from annual to every three years because, you know, that that screening picked up on early stage cervical cancer for me, and it saved my life. And I just want to comment that these guidelines are done for you know at at the population level. There are always going to be exceptions. And it is true that, you know, more frequent screening is going to pick up on, you know, on some cases that that would not, you know, cases of disease that would not have been picked up on, of course, if you hadn't done that screening. But recommendations have to be made looking at, you know, trends and outcomes and cost. And so it's sort of the best that we have. But again, there are always going to be outliers. There are always going to be exceptions. And that's why it's so important to have conversations with your particular um, healthcare provider. Andrea, Very anything well you said. want to say or <laughs> take, take us home here? I, I think I think we've covered as much as we're going to cover today. Um, but if you do want more Unbiased Science, please check out our Substack subscription. Uh, we do post extended content there periodically. Um, but the biggest perk is you get a direct line to Jess and myself in our private Facebook group, as well as access to our monthly live Q&As. And you're supporting our work over here at the pod. It's a $5 a month subscription. You can check it out at the Unbiased by a scipod.substack.com. Next episode, we are going to be tackling another controversial topic, and that is the topic related to obesity measurements or methods to measure obesity, including things like BMI, as well as medical management of weight and more. Um, We will have a special guest to help us tackle that. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19, RSV, influenza, science debunking, all the topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. I am a scientist. Yeah, uh, I am a scientist.